If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Jerome Glenn. He has, for 23 years, been the director and CEO of the Millennium Project. Uh, It's a global proprietary think tank with 63 nodes around the world, producing the annual State of the Future since 1997. Uh, And it's a a whole lot more than that as well. Uh, I think we're going to have a great half hour. Welcome to the show, Jerome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, I don't know that I gave a full and proper um, introduction to the Millennium Project, which I'm sure many of my listeners are familiar with, but just bring us all up to date so we all know how you spend your days. Ah, well, I spend my days reading all day long and responding. Uh, The Millennium Project uh, was actually conceived back in 1988. And the idea was the year 2000 was coming up, and we ought to do something serious as uh, serious futurists uh, so that we didn't get interviewed by guys like you and had too much to drink the night before and said something stupid. So we decided to create a global system to create uh, global futures research reports uh, relatively quickly. Uh, we now have uh, 64 nodes around the world. These nodes are groups of individuals and institutions that help find people that have got the best ideas in their countries and to bring all those ideas together and assess them and do various reports in the future of ethics, the future of AI, the future of all kinds of different stuff. Uh, and uh, we're not proprietary research, by the way. We do do some specific research contracts, like we designed the, um, uh, the uh, collective intelligence system for the Koi oil company, but that was so that we would get experience in doing it. But we're not a regular proprietary uh, consulting company as such. Uh, it's more like a public utility where we're looking at the whole game as much as possible. And then people draw from our stuff and our methods and content uh, the way they like. And so since the millennium has come and gone, unless maybe it's now the, the third millennium, is there a timeline focus of the group? Are you, are you, I mean, because there's a difference between asking like, what's life going to be like in five years versus 500 years, right? Right. Sure. <laughs> sure. And we don't tend to do 500 years too often. Although in 1999, we did write five alternative thousand year scenarios. Uh, the idea was that since everybody was looking back a thousand years to the Vikings and the rest of it, we figure we ought to at least look out a thousand years and see what we do. And those that, those those, those uh, scenarios are actually on our website. People can take a look at them. But normally, it depends on the issue. If you're looking at financial stuff, you're looking short range. Obviously, if you're looking at environmental stuff, you're looking longer range. So we don't have a set timeline. What we do have is a set of 15 global challenges that we update and improve insights, hopefully improve insights, on an ongoing basis. And that's much of the annual report of the State of the Future, but it's also the framework for understanding global change that we have in our online collective intelligence system. So when you write these 
materials, are you writing them for the general public, for policymakers, for, is there any group in particular that's like your intended uh, audience for your materials? Yeah, well, like any writer, we're happy that anybody read our stuff, <laughs> but uh, it's, 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 it's more for people who are actually uh, engaged in decision-making. Uh, they're the thought leaders, they're the advisors for policy people. Uh, a lot of the corporate strategic planning folks read this stuff, use it regularly. Uh, it's also used uh, by government uh, foresight folks around the world. Um, and an increasing number of libraries got our stuff, university libraries, because people, a lot of universities now are teaching sort of global strategic stuff and uh, long range future technology sort of stuff. And so the universities are, are using some of our stuff, like say the future they use in their uh, content, it's like a, like a textbook. And then those that teach methods uh, use our futures. We have a, a series of 37 different methods of looking at the future. It's the largest collection of methodology around. And so increasingly the college audience is getting involved in this, but initially it was your UN long-term folks, your government uh, policy people, and mostly advisors to the policy decision makers and the corporate uh, players. So let's pick uh, an issue. Our show is, the voice, is Voices in AI. Tell me what you think about artificial intelligence. What are some of the open questions? What are some okay. of the things yeah. that we think might be obvious at this point? Yeah, I think one thing we're trying to get the world to get clarity on is there's a tremendous confusion between artificial narrow, general, and super AI. And it's extremely annoying. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, in Korea, as you know, uh, the um, AlphaGo beat the Go champion. Mm -hmm. And many people in Korea... I go there a lot, uh, we're, we're going nuts because they're saying, oh my God, all these things that Elon Musk and Hawkins and, and Gates right, were right, playing, right. it's here now. You go, no, 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 no. It's something oh, different, right. No, this is a different deal. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. So let's, let's, let's split that up into three separate things. Uh, I'm sure all of my listeners are familiar with the distinction, but of course, narrow AI is a, is a technology designed to do one thing. The only thing the only fear people have around it typically are related to automation, not any of these dire scenarios. And then there's general intelligence, which is a technology we don't know how to build. Um, and that experts disagree is when we'll get it to between five and 500 years. And then there's super intelligence, which is a highly theoretical kind of general intelligence that has evolved so quickly to such a state that it is as incomprehensible as to us as, you know, as, as we are to an ant. Right. Um, yeah, what I would add, so, I'd add two things to that, though. Go ahead. One is, um, I think it's proper for Elon Musk and the rest of the folks to start raising red flags right now because, we, we, as you point out, we don't know how long it'll take to get to general intelligence. It might be 10 years, but, but it may be longer. We don't know. Uh, but if we do get it, we also don't know a more important thing, and that is how long it'll take to go from general to super, where super sets its own goals without our understanding. That might never happen. It might happen almost immediately. We don't know. So mm -hmm. it's better to panic early on this. 
Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, okay. So let's go with the general intelligence first. We'll start in the middle. Okay. Um, when I, I, I've had uh, almost 100 people on this show, and, and they're all, for the most part, practitioners in AI. Um, and I ask them all, you know, do you believe we can build a general intelligence? And, and then I ask, um, are people machines? And let me just ask you that to begin with. Is, your, is our brain a machine, do you believe? Well, my early education was philosophy. Uh huh. So uh, in the philosophy world, we always say, well, it depends on your definition. <laughs> well, let me ask it a different way then. Do you believe that with regards to the brain and by extension the mind, uh, that there's nothing that goes on in them that cannot fundamentally be explained by the rules of physics? I think that's a useful one of the additions of, of the United States to philosophy was what's called pragmatic philosophy. He said, I don't know what the truth is, but I, I know what works and what doesn't work. I think taking what you said as a working hypothesis and pursuing that way will produce more value than just guessing. So I'm sympathetic to that, but I, I don't I don't know enough truth to know the answer to that. But well, I, I mean, the, the, the idea, though, is that all the people who believe we can build a general intelligence right. to a person hold that belief, not because they know how to do it, but because they begin with that simple assumption that people are right. machines. And that's what I'm saying. Beginning with that, it's sort of like uh -huh. the Gaia hypothesis. If you uh -huh. begin with hypothesis, you do better science. So yes, I think that that's a good rational approach. Right. But, but the interesting thing is even though 95% of my guests uh, say yes to that, that they believe people are machines. When I put that same question on my website to the general public, 85% of the people say, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And so there's this huge disconnect between what AI practitioners think they are and what the general public believes they are. And, yeah. and you say it's a useful assumption. It's not a useful assumption if it's wrong. I mean, because oh, what it is no, doing no, no, is... I, oh, contrary. You can well, hold on. No, let me make that case. No, no, Copernicus had wrong assumptions, but uh -huh. he made some useful insights. Right. So you but, hypothesis, but, but you can be um, so useful at the end. Mm -hmm. But people, by and large, when they're told uh, by the Elon Musks of the world, you know, it's an existential threat. When the late Stephen Hawking said, it's the last thing we may be allowed to make. Um, when when they're told when people are told that over and over they're never it's never qualified with well if we're machines that's the case because then people are like well that's ridiculous we're not machines so i think it is certainly used to frighten a lot of people like the people you mentioned in korea and all of the rest and so if the assumption's wrong then you wouldn't want to alarm and frighten people with with uh with you know something that's actually impossible um, I don't quite agree. Um, uh, birds fly and airplanes fly. They don't fly the same way. They're not the same thing, but they both fly. Um, I think regardless of your assumption, if we are able to get to general intelligence, and, you know, I don't know the truth, but I'll certainly take a bet that we will, um, there's no reason to increase complexity because if you can still have a cytoplasmic you know, resonance between the, quote, universe beyond our understanding and our own cytoplasmic brain activities, 
uh, that generate mind in a similar way that matter and energy with the mechanical sort of stuff would generate a behavioral mind uh, in the same way that the plane flies. It doesn't fly it with cytoplasm, but it flies it nevertheless. So I would actually come, I wrote a book about this 30 years ago called Future Mind. And the thesis of the book essentially was that we would be so interlinked with technology in and on our body and the external built environment would be so full of sensors and AI, general AI, that the, that the, that the, that the two trends would merge into a conscious technology and the distinction between one and the other would be sort of who cares anymore in the same way that in the early email, you had a telephone and a computer and you could certainly know the difference between a telephone and a computer, but in the act of email, you couldn't separate them. So I'm suggesting that consciousness and technology will be inseparable eventually in the future. And the distinctions of these questions, people will say, well, that was like the old, how many apples, how many angels danced on a, on a, on a, on a, on a pin. I don't think we'll care in the future. We'll be so beyond a lot of these questions, so merged with, with, with all of this, that we'll just move on. Just like when I talk to you right now, am I talking to you or am I talking to a machine? Well, clearly I'm talking to a machine, talks to a machine. But we sort of like get over that and I say, I'm talking with you. So that's that's well and good to a point, but there really is an an issue that if machines do independently become conscious and they do experience the world, then... Well, I'm saying they, they might not independently do it. That, that we may, my defense, I mean, if it becomes independent, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. I do get a bit worried. I, that's why I wanted to do the merger. You know, if you can't beat them, join them as fast as possible. Right. Right. But I mean, if we did have conscious machines, those machines would, would acquire rights of a, of a kind similar to our own, right? I mean, if they yeah. can experience the world and, and pain and all of that. Sure. So what are your thoughts on consciousness? So it's called, of course, the last great question. We know we neither know how to ask scientifically nor what the answer would look like. Uh, it's the experience of being you, obviously. It's the difference between you can feel temperature and a computer. Uh, you can feel warmth, but a computer can only measure temperature. What, where do you think that comes about, and can machines achieve it, do you believe? I think it'll achieve something that we don't understand yet. But yes, I think it'll achieve something. Uh, I mean, it, it, like if you you know you roll back to the early uh, evolution of the universe, you, you know you would have said, "Where the hell is the mind?" <laughs> um, and, you know, some of us think that the increased complexity and increased complexity and blah, 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 and, and, and mind emerges from all of this. That's a, a perfectly view I can live with. I can also live with a view that the universe is way beyond my understanding. There may be some sort of sentience to the whole game that I don't know. And there may be some resonance between my mind and that. And people experience that sort of sensation. And I'm not going to knock that either. Um, well, I, let's I take the emergent Pardon? hypothesis. Sorry, go me. ahead. Let's assume it's emergence. Do you believe in strong emergence? Or, or, do, you, or do you think... The, so there's two ways to think about emergence. One is how you can study oxygen for a year and hydrogen for a year and never know if you put them together, you get water and has this new emergent property, it's wet. But right. once it happens, you can look at it and say, oh, I see how that happened. But right. then there's a notion of strong emergence, which is there's, 
it cannot actually be um, comprehended how, not just it's beyond our comprehension, but it cannot be comprehended in how the emergent property uh, is, because it is hard to see how matter can be alive and how, how a cloud of hydrogen can, in the end, uh, experience anything. Um, yeah, but just because we don't understand something and can't mm -hmm. even understand how we could understand it, they can't even conceive of how we could, doesn't mean we won't be able to eventually. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay, well, let's get, let's, let's, let's back up and go down to narrow intelligence. There's, of course, people who think that automation, and I know you have a, a report about the future of work that uh, is brand new. Um, some people are afraid that automation is going to destroy a bunch of jobs. Some people believe that, um, and we'll, we'll have kind of the permanent Great Depression, and there'll be a, a group of people who can't add value in this new world. And other people say, no, the story of these technologies is that they add so much productivity to people that, uh, that everybody's better off. And there's, you can never run out of jobs because there's an infinite number of them that anytime you can add value, you've just created a job. What about you? Where do you think about all of that? Well, we wrote three alternative detailed scenarios, not simply images of the future, but actually real scenarios where you sort of have cause and effect links between the a future condition and the present tense, naming ranks and serial numbers and decisions and so forth. Uh, so each is about 10, it's about 30 pages of, of thinking on this, so to speak. And uh, with one set of assumptions, one story comes out with a different set of assumptions, another story comes out. Uh, but to jump into your question and the essence of it, um, a lot of this has to do with, um, uh, I want to say the artists of the world. Um, uh, you and I, and, and most people sort of identify themselves saying, well, I'm a broadcaster, I'm a writer, I'm a this. Um, you know, we identify with our work. And if a lot, if, if governments and corporations and universities don't take this seriously and prepare for some of this transition stuff, as we talk about in, in, in the report, this is a really complex stuff. It's hard to, to, to simplify it. But if we don't slowly make the adjustment to say, look, the analogy I use with Abraham Maslow, uh, you know, you your basic needs met, you know, you eventually get to self-actualization. Well, the world in 1980, the majority of it was in extreme poverty. Today, it's under 10%. So we're having a lot of the basic needs of civilization being met. And we've got this, we've got the social media stuff taking care of some of our love and belongingness needs and self-esteem needs. So we're moving as a species, not fully yet, but toward the idea of self-actualization. And we've had economies for each of these sort of echelons going along. We don't have it yet for self-actualization much. What I'm suggesting is that if the artist community, the writers, the movies, television, all that, slowly evolves us into how we could evolve to say we will have a civilization where AI is not a threat, but an adjunct to making the civilization work in the same way that we have our old reptilian brain making our body work. We don't worry about the heartbeat, eh, unless you had a heart attack. But we don't worry, you know, the bodily function was taking care of it. And that frees up our mind, our brain, to be forward looking and thinking and self-actualizing. Um, and by analogy, we're looking at a self-actualizing economy slowly evolving. 
But even in that best case scenario, out to 2050, we had only about 3 billion people into that sort of world and another uh, billion still working in the normal sense that they have a job, they have a salary, because you might only need a billion people to, to, to all this at this point. Uh, but then you still have another billion or two in, in formal economies and unemployment. So it's even the best case, the it's hard to make the transition really look great, but we can certainly move more in that direction than ignoring all this sort of stuff and then wait until we hit. Because to me, the big deal isn't the narrow AI knocking out truck drivers, because that's not going to happen in one day. It's as you can phase that. There's a lot of preparations you can do for that. And a lot of people have got good ideas about that. What I worry about is a shift from narrow to general, because that, that shift, if it occurs, would have far more impact on jobs than narrow AI on the global basis. So to be clear, yeah, if, if, if there is no general intelligence, if it's just narrow, you, yeah. you're not as worried about the transition. Correct. So I've, I've spent a fair amount of time trying to figure out the half-life of a job, and I think it's 50 years. I think every 50 years we lose half of all jobs. Yeah, that's uh, reasonable. Yeah. yeah and, it may be a little bit faster in the future. That's, that's true. Um, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's any faster. The OECD did a report where they actually looked at the number. I mean, you know what the real problem is, of course, is, is and you don't have to go back to the Industrial Revolution to see this. You can go back to the, to the Internet. Because <laughs> if you went back 25 years when the Mosaic browser was released and you said to somebody, hey, you know, in 25 years, you're going to have billions of people use this thing. What's going to happen to work? you would have said, well, uh, there won't be any more travel agents or stockbrokers or yellow pages or newspapers. And you would have been right about everything, right? Like everybody could call the ball on what was going to get destroyed. But nobody, literally nobody, saw eBay, Etsy, Airbnb, Uber, Google, Amazon. You'll have to do a Google search to find a book called Future Mind, and you'll find uh -huh. that and all that. As a matter of all fact, right. the smartphone, I didn't have the word smartphone, but I called it the talk, the tree of knowledge. Well, no, I mean, there were inklings of it. Of course, I mean, even, yeah. even Tesla wrote about, you know, you'll carry it in your shirt pocket and all of that. But those specific companies, I mean, those specific business models, um, you know, took a while to emerge. No, oh. they weren't self-evident in 1995. Um, because we know that because those companies are, and their and their can did not uh, emerge. So the challenge always is you can see the jobs that are going to be lost and you never can see the, the jobs that are going to be created. And it gives the illusion that more jobs are going to be lost. And, and it's like, well, what are these people going to do? And it's like, well, they're going to be short wranglers. And well, this is what, yeah, this is why I'm saying self-actualization becomes a bigger deal. For example, I am making a living out of being myself <laughs> at this moment. Am I at work? Am I at play? Am I having fun? It's sort of all slashed together. Um, it, we can connect to networks worldwide, as we are doing, you and I, right now, uh, by doing the things we actually are curious about and are turned on by. All the great, you know, billionaires, when they're asked, well, what do you do? They all say they follow their passion. Well, the average person never gets around to that. But the average person might be more of the average, not all, but many of the average persons might very well start to get into that idea, hey, I can express myself through new kinds of software, new kinds of market hitting around the world. So if I go to the Louvre, I want to go to the Louvre anyway, and I can say to the world, hey, I want to Louvre. So, so one euro, click here, one dollar, click here. 
I'll have my little, little camera on and I'll walk you through the Louvre. And I'll have, I don't know, maybe 30, 40, 50 people agree to do this. That money takes care of a pretty, pretty nice lunch. But I was going to go to the Louvre anyway. Right. When you say don't, you don't running out of work, the idea, you, you never run out of being you. I mean, you will always, hopefully, will always grow, be more curious, and more curious, the more curious you get, and you keep evolving and evolving. And I see no end to that. The trick is, can you connect to enough folks that are also interested in that to help provide the basic income for you? And which, of course, leads to the idea that basic income we might hit if we get to general intelligence, we might need it. Um. You know, do you know the essay Maynard Keynes wrote in 1930 about a life in 100 years, and he said that we'll only have to work 15 hours? Because yeah. he, made, he made some predictions about GDP, real GDP growing. And the, the interesting thing is he was right about it. Like, it even grew to the high end of what, what he suggested. And yet, we don't, um, and yet we don't, uh, Everybody asks the same question, which is like, well, I have all this stuff, all this tech, why am I working so hard? Yeah. And, and, and the, the answer to the riddle, of course, is that, well, is that if you wanted to live a 1930 life, i.e. 600 square feet, no air conditioning, no medical insurance, grow your own food, make your own clothes, no, don't go on vacation, you could do that in 15 hours a week. Um, but people don't. So human wa human wants are kind of infinite. So I want to reference back to your earlier comment that a billion people may be all that we need. Um, but if human wants are um, uh, infinite, yeah. Well, there's a difference. There's a difference between how many people do you need to make civilization work versus how many people do you need to make civilization worthwhile. Those are two different things. The worthwhile part is an expanding pool. The making it work can be a shrinking pool in the same way with the analogy with the body. You got this little you know, part of your brain in the back there running the system. You don't need the whole gray matter to run the system. So you keep um, you know, qualifying it as, as you should with all bets are off if uh, we hit general intelligence. Can you construct a scenario where we don't make general intelligence that does not rely on anything supernatural or spiritual? Or I mean, because can can you could you come up with a purely scientific scenario that says you can't actually build a general intelligence? Well, but to me, my understanding is that you can have general intelligence in a in a completely mechanistic view. It doesn't. You know, general intelligence does not require a soul. It just requires that it goes all over the Internet of Things, all over the sensor networks, all over libraries, all over everything it gets hands on to come up with an answer to a novel problem. That, to me, is general intelligence. But, but that's way... completely machine. That doesn't necessarily right. need a soul. But the, the, the primary tactic we're using for narrow AI right now is a machine learning, which is a simple idea. It says you take data about the past and you study it and you make projections into the future. And it, by definition, therefore, only works on problems where the future is like the past. You can get it to identify cats because cats look the same tomorrow as they looked yesterday. 
But it is not at all clear that all things behave that way. Um, and so I, I put the question to people on the show, do you believe that narrow AI slowly evolves into general intelligence or is general intelligence something completely different that ha we uh, haven't even started working on it? Good, uh, good, good for you. Now, uh, I want to let's talk about that a little bit. You, now, you know Ben Gertzel, right? Uh-huh. Okay, good. I know Ben for eons ago. And he used to believe that general required a completely different strategy to develop, and it wasn't an extension of narrow, right? Uh-huh. I think he's changed his mind lately. You know about the singularity net? Sure. Okay. Now, he has said in there, in some emails back and forth, it sort of sounded like he thought that if enough narrow developers were in collaboration and sharing information and blah, 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 that that complexity could itself generate general. Now, that's new. I don't remember him ever saying that. Well, the, the interesting thing is the, the, when I put that question to my guests, they're pretty much split on it, which is unusual. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also very interesting that the number of people who are working on general intelligence is actually quite tiny. Yeah. Like, well, it's well, OpenAI, oh, oh, Carnegie oh, Mellon. Oh, oh. Little, little pause there. Uh-huh. Little pause. Uh, you know that Putin has said, whoever rules AI... Sure, sure. rules the world, right. And you got the China goal for 2030, right? Now, mm -hmm. military intelligence, as we both know, and research tends to be ahead of what gets applied to the public. And the question is, can you make a generalization? Is it five years, 10 years, 20 years? And of course, people say, well, it depends on what it is. But in any case, it's years ahead. Now, since the power structure of the world is in a deadly serious competition to get this, including organized crime, by the way, because I see overlap between Russian and organized crime getting involved in this because they got enough money to buy the best talent that money can buy, right? So the, 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 the new arms race is this sweatware and <laughs> cyberware into a merger into, uh, into these new forms of intelligence. And I think that they very well could be closer to this than we realize. So I think the numbers of people in the public and private corporations, correct, minuscule compared to the potential. But I would bet my life that folks like NRO and the rest of these folks are up their eyeballs in this stuff. Right. You know, it's interesting because what I have noticed is the closer you are to being a practitioner, the less close you think general intelligence is. Like I have people on the show who, who say, you know, we don't have voice recognition able to tell the difference between A, H, and 8. Like that's where we're really at. Um, or it's the only of the Allen Institute. People thought, remember, face recognition, people thought it was going to take a while. That went pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, but but we don't, I mean, again, just to be perfectly clear, we don't have a cons construct for how you go from, okay, I'm going to study a bunch of data about the past, mm -hmm. and I'm going to make projections in the future, how you go from there to uh, a computer writing Harry Potter or uh, any, any of the rest of it. Anything that, that requires, uh, you know, we don't have transfer learning knocked out. We don't understand how people 
can apply information so seamlessly. We don't know how people can get trained on sample sizes of one, uh, how, we can, how we can pull the essence of something out, even at a very young age. I mean, we are so far away from that, that, uh, that I, I, yeah, anyway, like yeah, Andrew yeah. Ng says, worrying about that particular technology is like, he says, worrying about overpopulation on Mars. It's like, that's really where we're at. Yeah, but don't undersell um, the AI competition between the United States, China, Russia, the European Union, the United States. <clears throat> I think it's a deadly serious game. Uh, and if I were running operations in the United States, uh, I certainly wouldn't let anybody know how far down the road we are. What do you think? You can see, of, of course, a lot of national security applications for narrow intelligence, right? Well, yes, and, and there are. But what would you say would be a national security um, application that you're imagining for general intelligence? I'd rather not talk about that. That's, that's, oh. that's, that's very serious. Okay. Yeah, no, well, we're, we're involved in information warfare right now, unfortunately. And uh, I don't want to add one more molecule in that direction. <laughs> so um, I guess then, well, it looks like we're running out of time anyway. I would like to leave you with um, my big question for you, which is you're this guy who's like a giant in your field. You've been doing this future study for decades. You you steeped in it on a day-to-day -day basis. This is your bread and butter. It's like air to you. In the end, are you optimistic or pessimistic about our future? Depends. If I'm talking to you and you and I think you're too pessimistic, I'll tell you how it can work. If you're too over-optimistic, I'll scare the hell out of you. Uh, you know, it's like a bedside matter in medicine. Uh, we don't know the truth, but it, we can be situational about it. But what I would like to jump in here is on the AI and work and all that, we ended up with 93 things that should be done to make the transition work well, 93. And they had international assessments. Each one got a whole page of international assessment. So there's a whole slew of stuff that can be done that should make us optimistic. And a whole lot of people who are not even taking this stuff seriously, that is a good reason for pessimism. All right. Well, let's leave it there. I want to thank you for an invigorating and exciting half hour. Um, it was fascinating, and I uh, hope you come back and uh, tell us what, uh, what the newest thing we should know about the future is. I'd be happy to. You're a good interviewer. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.